Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this at my home, which is on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Ohlone people in what is now known as Oakland, California. As many of you know, this podcast is aimed at white Christians like me, who are responding to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in our own Christian tradition. And from there, we are seeking to follow the leadership of people of color as we build up a new, more joyful, more just world. We are building up a new world. That's also the song you're hearing throughout this podcast. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. So it's been a while since I've been with you. My last episode was way back in the beginning of December, which in COVID time feels like two years ago, and also like last week. Everything and nothing has changed several times over. We are surfing so many ways of so many waves of disruption right now and living with so much uncertainty. My friend Carol Robison has been saying for years now that it's time to develop our sea legs, and I know she's right, and yet some days I'm not sure I'm getting any better at living with this much flux, especially when all the change exists in combination with a sense of stuckness because it feels really hard, for me at least, to know how to bend the arc toward justice when it's still not really safe to be in each other's presence. We're just missing each other really badly right now, I think. Part of how that has been showing up in my life is a lot of conflict in the communities and movements I'm a part of. We're needing to have some really hard conversations about how supremacy dynamics are showing up in those spaces, and it feels terrifying. Like these conversations will either break those communities or free up tremendous new energy and creativity, and we don't know which it will be. I guess this is kind of where we are as a larger community too. We have some hard conversations to have, and they will either lead to deeper schisms or to healing and new potential. It's super stressful to stand on this threshold. So that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today is how do we ground ourselves spiritually for the kinds of conversations that we need to have if we're going to uproot supremacy thinking from our own tradition and beyond. So this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday, the celebration of what my friend Maki Ash Van Steenwick calls glowy Jesus. And usually we focus there on the story of Jesus getting all lit up as he talks with his movement ancestors on the mountaintop. And Peter is both terrified and wowed, remember? 
and he wants to stay there forever, but they have to go back down to the valley where there is just as much suffering and struggle as there ever has been. And the other disciples have not been able to help with it. And Jesus sets it right, but not before he expresses his dismay that his followers still aren't getting it. I'll be holding that story in the background this week and focusing more on the Second Corinthians passage. The letter to the Corinthians, the letters to the Corinthians, because there are two of them that we know of and more that apparently never made it to us. Anyway, they're all about conflict and community strife. And I think the passage this week offers us a way to think about all of that that might be helpful. What this section of Corinthians has in common with glowy Jesus is this concept of glory, a tremendously misunderstood word. And that's where I want to focus today. Let's jump in. In a moment, I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12 through 4, 2. But before I do that, I want to give a word of caution. This passage, like a number of Paul's writings, contrasts something called the New Covenant available in Jesus with a so-called Old Covenant made with Israel when God communicated guidelines for living through Moses. Paul goes into this comparison between what Moses did and what Christ did, and there's a really dangerous way of reading and hearing this passage that suggests that Christianity, which didn't even exist, remember, when this was written, has replaced Judaism because Christianity is somehow superior. This is not what Paul is saying here. We have to remember that Paul himself was a devoted and observant Jew. Jesus was too, for that matter. It would make zero sense for Paul, a Jew, talking to a mostly Gentile audience, to abandon his own people in this letter. I wanted to focus today on this scripture intentionally so that we can unearth and look squarely at the dangerous misunderstanding that underlies anti-Semitism and other forms of supremacy. So, as I read this, I'm asking you to listen especially for what Paul says about a veil and about glory. Here's 2 Corinthians 3:12 through 4:2. Since then we have such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Hmm. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. 
We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. So that's Paul. Let's talk about this veil and how it might be getting in our way even now, causing us to replicate dangerous forms of supremacy, including the anti-Semitism that gets read into this passage. Paul is referring, when he talks about a veil, back to the story about how Moses would come down from the mountain after having been in the presence of God, and his face would be so lit up that it just really freaked the people out. So he'd put on a veil as he talked with them about what God was asking of them. The veil both protected the people and also obscured the true nature of God as it was being reflected in Moses' face. The veil caused the wilderness wanderers to miss fully seeing and understanding God, or at least that's what Paul is arguing. And in this passage, it becomes a metaphor for how the Corinthians also are not getting it. And we, when we read this passage as an affirmation of Christian supremacy, also don't get it. We are coming to the revelation of God's glory as if through a veil that obscures the nature of that glory. And this sets us up to do harm and it gets in the way of our transformation. It gets in our way of being able to be in healthy conflict together. The veil, I think, are all the cultural assumptions embedded in us that keep us from being able to perceive a God who exists entirely outside of those assumptions. For the ancient Hebrew people, the veil was maybe the trauma of having lived under brutal exploitation for generations in Egypt. For the church members in Corinth, the veil was socialization into an elaborate honor-shame culture that imagined glory in the image of Caesar, wealth, power, an ability to subdue any foe who stands in the way of what you want. I don't think we today are so different from those Corinthians. We are so habituated into white supremacy and heteropatriarchy that we cannot imagine a way of being that isn't about trying to rise up through some kind of hierarchy, with glory residing at the very top. Let me just talk about myself. Without major help from God, I am an extremely competitive person. In high school, I retook the ACT because my best friend, my best friend, scored two points higher than I did, and I couldn't stand it. I didn't want to just be smart. I wanted to be the smartest. I didn't want to just be nice. I wanted to be the nicest. I was a nightmare at game nights. I was big into speech and debate at that time, and I remember that I would enter into classrooms for each round and just kind of automatically size up the competition. I would try to figure out where I was going to rank in that room before anyone even said a word. I shudder to think now of the markers I must have been using to make that assessment which no doubt had to do with race and class. This desire to rank everything within a hierarchy is really deeply embedded in our culture and in our psyches, and it has been for a long, long time. Last year, I was preparing a presentation on whiteness for a group of white people, and I did a deep dive into learning about the great chain of being. Do you know about the great chain of being? 
It's this really disturbing hierarchical structure that attempts to order all of creation according to how spiritual it was. At the top is God, and also interestingly the king, since the two were viewed as pretty much synonymous. Below that were the angels, and then human beings, ranked according to ethnicity. Really, you can't imagine how offensive this is, except that you probably totally can. Below the lowest humans are the animals, then the plants, then the minerals. The great chain of being has its roots in the Greek philosophy that permeated, for example, first century Corinth, that prioritized spirit over matter. This philosophy then got merged with a distorted Christianity, the poisonous roots of which I think Paul was already witnessing and pointing to, to give this whole hierarchy the sheen of being ordained by God. Now, this had obvious political advantages for those in power. It more or less kept the peace in medieval Europe as peasants were convinced that their subservient position was the natural God-ordained order of things. In this country, it bolstered the advent of white supremacy, and it gave even poor and disenfranchised white people a way to imagine themselves as further up the chain than at least some other human beings. It served to divide people who otherwise would naturally have acted in solidarity. Fantasies of supremacy, of being further up the chain of being than someone else, continue to divide us today. We compete with everyone all the time. We compete even with ourselves, seeking constantly to do better and be better than we have in the past. This desire fuels the whole self-help and personal growth industry, the constant striving. It's both exhausting and painful, right? And yet, it's so irresistible. Even on the left, we have our own hierarchies of value in which we compete to be the most woke, to have the best analysis, to bring the most important contributions to the movement. This obsession with hierarchy and our place in it is a veil. It obscures the nature of God. It obscures the glory of God as revealed to Moses and as revealed in Jesus. It also interferes with our ability to value one another and work together effectively. Let's turn our attention now to the concept of glory as an antidote to all of this striving and competing and proving of ourselves. There are a number of words that get translated as glory in our scriptures, and none of them really means what most of us think of when we hear glory today. We tend to think of glory as success. The former high school athlete thinks back on those triumphant seasons as their glory days, the days when they were winning, coming out on top. And that's not really what the Hebrew or Greek words mean. The word most often translated as glory in the Hebrew scriptures is kavod, a word that connotes full presence and weight. There is this profundity to glory. It carries a weighty dignity that inspires awe. 
Witnessing this kind of glory puts things in a larger and more humbling perspective, not because we are less than, but because the creation is so freaking gorgeous and we get to be here as a part of it. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will write that God's glory is revealed to us in the face of Christ. The same idea is expressed throughout the Gospels, most notably in John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. And that glory is revealed in Jesus through his life, his care for people, his unwillingness to take on any of the trappings of power or even chief comfort or cheap comfort. That's what the temptations were about, right? It's revealed in his refusal to defend or justify himself. Even on the cross, when the soldiers taunt him, if you are the son of God, save yourself, he doesn't seek to master the situation. Instead, he stands in the quiet assurance of who he is and how much he loves and what he is called to do as a result. This is the stance I want to take into the conflicts we're experiencing in our movements. Quiet assurance of who we are and how much we love and what we're called to do as a result. Every once in a while, we get to see this glory revealed. And we know, of course, that Christ is not the only place that that is revealed. For me, often I catch sight of it in direct actions. I think of Bree Newsom taking down the Confederate flag as she recited Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty, the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. That's glory. Bree Newsom on that flagpole reciting that psalm. I think also of Aisha Evans. I don't know if you remember Aisha Evans, but there was an iconic picture of her that circulated for a while. She's out in the streets, part of a March for Black Lives, and she's dressed in this shiny silver evening gown. She is standing there with utter self-assurance and yet utterly vulnerable as riot police move in to arrest her. That's God's glory revealed. The powers of this world are no match for this kind of glory. For the revelation of just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. Created in the image of God, Aisha Evans loves herself, and she loves her fellow human beings, and therefore she loves God. The riot police are no match for her, and in seeing her, we know, we really get it, that one day black lives will matter, and on that day, all lives will matter, because that is the glory of God revealed on earth. I also caught sight of God's glory this week in an editorial in the New York Times, written by Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, 
who serves at Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas. Yes, that's the congregation that was held hostage by a gunman just a few weeks ago. Rabbi Citron Walker writes that he was the one who opened the door for the gunman that day. And although he regrets what happened, he will never stop welcoming the stranger. That's God's glory revealed. This glory is not a triumph over someone else. It is not an ascension of any kind of hierarchy. It is completely vulnerable, completely human, and also incredibly courageous. It comes not from striving, but from surrendering to the moment while standing in the dignity of knowing oneself to be a child of God. When Paul says we act with great boldness, I think this is what he's talking about. He's talking about what we saw in Bree Newsom or Aisha Evans or Rabbi Citron Walker or countless others whose names we don't know. He's talking about acting from a deep, sure knowledge that there is something more profound, more beautiful than any of Rome's riches and bling, than any riot police, than any gunman, and that we get to be a part of that. Don't be fooled by the veil, he's saying. Look to Jesus and all those standing in the full vulnerable authority of their status as God's people. And there, see God's glory revealed. What does this mean for us concretely? I think it means we give up the endless striving to do better or be better than anyone else, but also than ourselves. I think it means that we dedicate that energy that has gone into the striving instead to seeking out God's glory wherever it is being revealed, really trying to see it. The idea here, according to Paul, is that there is something about witnessing God's glory, the weight of God's love and assurance that transforms us. He says, and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This doesn't mean we're striving to be more holy. <laughs> no, that effort only directs our attention toward appearances. And then there we are behind the veil again. I think instead it means that we are allowing ourselves to be transformed by the sensory input we are seeking out. Finally, I think there is something here about dignity. Although white folks have many privileges and have inherited many spoils from this racial nightmare in this country, by and large, we are not in touch with our dignity. White supremacy veils it from us. Just as it veils our ability to perceive God's glory, it veils any accurate understanding of who we are. So long as we are trying to climb some social hierarchy, we are unable to accept and understand just who we are in all our flawed and beautiful humanity. And that prevents us from being able to work through our conflicts together. Friends, dignity doesn't come from being better than anyone else. It comes from being alive and aware and honest about who we are and what we are capable of, from atrocities to great principled risks in the name of love. It involves perceiving our true place in the world, both small 
and significant. There's a somatic practice I've been experimenting with that is about feeling my own dignity. It's really simple. It involves dropping my shoulders and opening up my chest just a little bit, feeling my feet firmly planted, and then just noticing who I am. Try out that posture. See how it feels for you. And if it helps, try practicing that a few times every day. May God's glory be revealed among us from one degree to another until, as God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And as God said through the prophet Isaiah, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Amen. For your call to action this week, I want to ask you to go seeking the glory of God. And specifically, I want to ask you to seek it in Jewish activism as an antidote to Christian anti-Semitism. A great place to start is with our partner organization, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, based in New York City. They are organizing with their neighbors and allies to transform New York from a playground for the wealthy few into a real democracy for all people, free of all forms of racist violence. Bend the Ark is an umbrella organization for progressive Jews fighting for collective liberation in the U.S. context. And if not now, is a powerful network of Jews fighting to end the occupation of Palestine, removing the U.S. support for that occupation. I'll link to these websites in the transcript. Check out what they're up to and support where you can. Second, I invite you to think about where you see the glory of God being revealed in your own community. How can you draw closer to that work and allow yourself to be transformed by it? And finally, how can you stay in touch with your own worth and dignity that does not come from being better than anyone else or even better than you were yesterday, but simply from existing as a child of God. That's what I've got for you this week, folks. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can comment on our podcast at SoundCloud, search for the word is resistance. You can also comment on this episode where we've posted it on our Facebook page. Look for Surge Faith or visit our website, surge.org, to respond to our listener survey. We'd love it if you give us a like wherever you're listening to this podcast that helps us reach more folks. Oh, and hey, we've got some exciting news. On March 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we're having our first ever virtual meetup for our listeners. And as part of that gathering, in addition to some ritual and some great content, we'll be connecting folks like you, yes, you, to others who live in your region. You can register at bit.ly backslash TWIR meetup. That's bit.ly backslash TWIR meetup. 
or just go to our Facebook page, Surge Faith, and you'll find the registration link there. We would love to meet you, so please join us. Also, keep an eye out for our Ash Wednesday episode coming up with Reverend Jean Jeffress, and then I'll be back with you for our next regular episode dropping on Friday, March 4th. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Claire Hitchens. Claire, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for far-reaching healing, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. <laughs>